1: Welcome to New Books and Critical Theory, which is a podcast that's part of the New Books Network. On this episode, I'm talking to Carl Devine, who's an Associate Professor in the Department of Musicology at the University of Oslo, about Decomposed, the Political Ecology of Music. So welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Dave. It's nice to be here. This is both an incredibly interesting book, but um, given what we know about how long it takes to produce academic books... The timing of it is spectacularly perfect, um, as we're you know, confronted daily with evidence of um, the global climate catastrophe. Uh, particularly, I'm, I'm thinking about uh, images that we're, we're getting from Australia, but also changing weather patterns in places like, like Canada. A book that tries to get to grips with the ecological cost of what seems to be something that has nothing to do with the environment. Um, is is incredibly important right now, um, and, and I guess the place to start with the book is 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 that question actually that what got you interested in writing about music from uh, an ecological perspective because they don't quite seem to be two topics that immediately uh, connect to each other.
0: Yeah, well, I guess I started working on the book around well, in twenty twelve, um, and actually, it can just start by giving you a personal thanks, Dave, because I was doing the article that became the book while we shared an office at City in London. Um, so we had uh, early conversations about all of this. So it's kind of, it's a fun full circle thing to be here on the podcast talking about it.
1: Yeah, and it's great to see the book published as well.
0: Yeah. Um, but, so back in 2012, I was working on, I started working on this project. And it was sort of because I kept encountering these two ideas that made me uncomfortable and they they seem to reinforce one another as well. first is this old idea that music is is somehow the most immaterial of the arts um, and second, that the history of recorded music was it could be told as a history of dematerialization right this evolution from these these physical discs to invisible digits um, and, but even back in two thousand twelve right there's a lot of good work in media studies looking at. You know the sort of weight of the internet and and uh, the weight of our consumption of electronics and things so I knew back then that digital files are material things, and that online consumption was not weightless right and because I work in music and because you know not only was there this prevalent sense that that you know the internet was somehow weightless in lots of sort of everyday thinking um, but also that music is the most immaterial of the arts and they kind of compounded one another these two ideas so I basically started out I just wanted to know about the resources and the energy um, both natural and human that that were required to make downloading and streaming possible and from there I spun out and started looking at Uh, the other main formats in the history of recorded music. And I started to look at the history of recorded music in terms of three staple commodities and their supporting casts. So um, from 1900 to 1950, most records were made of something called shellac. And from 1950 to 2000, all the major recording formats, um, LPs, 45s, cassettes, and CDs, those are all made of plastic. And since about the year 2000, increasingly people downloaded and, and streamed music. So that's sort of where the book comes from and gives you a sketch of the chapters.
1: I mean, it's a remarkable story of uh, incredible both you know, social and cultural change, but actually with the continuity of we need to take seriously how these um, material both uh, objects and material uh, practices um, are impacting, and, and crucially, actually, uh, you know, you, you mentioned almost just in passing there the kind of the human resources involved, uh, which is something I think the book does really well. Actually, is not just to say, you know, making shellac or creating plastic or, or whatever has an environmental cost, but you know, these are global supply chains. We need to think about, um, you know, how things are produced where particular factories are, what the labor force is, the um, increasingly kind of interlinked inequalities of, of, of global production. Yeah. Uh, exactly. Again, you know, the, as you say, you know, we, we've noticed uh, the shift to whatever, Spotify or the MP3, but actually that story is still still. There. I guess the question that comes from that um, is how can we illustrate this? Um, and you... you did a perfect job of of, of the three um, different um, materials. So maybe actually we, we could start by telling the the story of shellac. Um, you know, we, we think of, uh, of vinyl as the kind of the classic format for particularly albums, um, and the story of shellac is is something that again draws us back to um, the human and uh, environmental costs of music.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Um, so the story of shellac begins in India. And shellac is a, a resin that is secreted by a, la- a beetle. It's called the lac beetle, um, and there's been there'd been an international shellac trade for you know hundreds of years, um, but it really wasn't until the early 1900s when the record industry started requiring shellac in its discs and they tried different materials before there were wax cylinders, discs were made from rubber, um, and, and basically anything you can imagine. Um, but they, they started using shellac in huge numbers in the early, uh, 1900s. And it was around that point that, that actually the, the record industry drove the global sort of explosion of the shellac industry. Um, so, record industry here wasn't just a kind of passive observer of you know these these bigger global supply chains and and, and global stories. This was, was an active um, contributor that actually drove some developments in that industry. And uh, so, in, to to harvest this shellac in various parts of India, um, there were there were you know a lot of different workers that would go out into these you know the Fields with the trees where the shellac beetles would would uh, secrete their resin, they would basically just get the resin off the branches however they could, um, gather those up, bring them to a sort of processing plant or factory um, where the material was sort of washed and dried and melted and processed in various ways uh put put into sacks and shipped out to to various r- record industry folks around the world from from places like calcutta um and and so that's you know it's kind of interesting and and you know quirky or whatever maybe to think that records are you know for a long time are made of bugs um and it is kind of quirky and interesting um but the conditions for the people that that worked in that industry were really bad (laughs) um there's the one of the main sources i used in the book was a government of india labor report um from published in 1946 i believe um and basically described aspects of the shellac industry as as sweatshop industries um people were paid extremely low wages they were worked extremely hard um, they didn't have security of their jobs because shellac was a seasonal commodity, which meant that they got into tremendous amounts of debt to their employers in the off seasons when they needed money to support themselves and their families um, and, and on in these ways. Um, so it, it, wasn't, it wasn't a very nice industry um, on that end of it, for sure.
1: That's one um Element, I guess, you know, and, and uh, there are many elements of 20th century and then 21st century life that have these, uh, you know, kind of hidden, very grim um, production practices. But I was also struck by, you know, if the material is a story of um, exploitation and, and the global south. Actually making like records as records has an important gender politics to it and a particular uh, set of, of um, really obviously kind of, um, I suppose, gendered incentives around um, who worked in factories and how much, or actually more importantly, how little they got paid. Right. Um, you mean, so you mean the, the record pressing plants
0: themselves?
1: Yeah, I was, I was really struck when you, you were talking about uh, RCA being, you know, basically sort of um, a female production force uh, in their plants because uh, women's labor was cheaper, you know, um, as, as a really kind of um, bit of ruthless kind of, um, you know, uh, business and, and capitalist decision making.
0: Yeah. So there's a great book by Jefferson Cowie. Uh, called Capital Moves which is about RCA's sort of quest for for cheap labor and um, around the late 1940s RCA's recording um, facilities moved a significant portion of what they were doing to Indiana and the reason for that was that Even though shellac is the sort of symbolically important ingredient in records from that time, shellac was actually a very minor component in the discs, around 15%. Most of those discs was just crushed rock. And the best and most of that crushed rock came from Indiana. So the the record company moved its its production facilities to Indiana, I guess, to save on long-haul shipping. Um, but there, you know, that was this was also a region that had um, experienced a lot of problems since the Depression, and their their some of their local industries had collapsed, um, and and the the people that worked in those industries didn't have much experience with organized labor unions, um, and and so this was a kind of perfect storm where where RCA could move in there, they could have. Abundant, very cheap labor. They could basically uh, prevent them from from organizing, um, and and they did use a lot of male labor for heavy lifting and things like this. But there were also uh, a lot of women in the area that that did work in the, in the plant as well. Many of them worked in quality control. Excuse me, quality control, sort of listening to records that were pressed and making sure that they sounded okay. Um, but there were plenty of them that worked on the on the pressing floor as well. Um, and, you know, the typical story there of, of of sort of inequality and exploitation, they're paid less than men. They have um, discourses surrounding them about, you know, they're supposedly deft and nimble fingers, which is which is a really prevalent discourse in uh, the electronics industry as well around women's labor, um, you know, expected to, to leave their jobs once they married. And things like this and this goes through the shellac era and and into the plastic era as well some of the very same conditions defined women's labor um in lp pressing plants as well Um, and i think i mean one of the things about this is that often the story of of the record industry is kind of boys and toys men and machines kind of kind of history that gets told but this this you know looking at these Material, ecological, human labor costs that that extend beyond, you know, listening to the music pressed into a record, um, you know, opens up this this broader history of of labor and exploitation that is really pressed into every record during that period, uh, regardless of what what the music on that record was. These are the the broad conditions that defined all the music heard and made and listened to uh, for a long, long time
1: and how how are they made um you know we've heard a bit about the material a bit about the workforce but but the industrial process of of making the the old 78s
0: yeah so once once that shellac was shipped to a a record pressing plant and once that record pressing plant had its um crushed rock and all that this stuff is essentially mixed uh and heated and mixed into a kind of goopy substance um and there were different ways of making things but essentially they would they would get little these this goopy substance would be divided into little pucks and these pucks would go into a machine that lots of people describe as the press itself they describe it as kind of like a waffle iron and it just squashes the record um and and out comes the record and it cools and it's essentially ready to go and there's, there's a lot of other processes that happen there, chemical plating and everything to make the actual um, sort of uh, the pieces on the waffle iron that, that get pressed together, we'll call them. Um, the book looks less at those, but those were certainly, you know, processes that used a lot of chemicals, which were probably uh, dumped indiscriminately and, and were, were toxic and, and could harm employees if they weren't treated correctly.
1: I mean, that, that's probably the uh, classic bit of sort of popular imagination of making a record at a time when, uh, you know, there are various sort of uh, arguments about how uh, music itself was uh, quote-unquote industrially produced or not. Um, and that, you know, uh, various American recording studio systems goes hand-in-hand hand with the vision of, yeah, pucks being pressed on uh, an industrial scale. Now, the book sort of uh, I've mentioned has this, you know, continuity and change uh, element to it. Um, And I guess, you know, plastic and, uh, you know, broader sort of um, changes in materials has a big effect on the recording industry. Along the categories and, and along the lines we, we've already discussed, and it'd be good to hear about. Uh, I think that's you know the kind of core of chapter two, the story of changes in the political ecology of the recording industry after the 1950s. Right.
0: Um, well, yeah, this is a long story. It's hard to uh, say in a few words. Um, I mean, so basically, the the story that's most often told. About why the the recording industry shifted from shellac to plastic is 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 a story of of increased sound quality right these records had you know the the lps played for you know over twenty minutes rather than just a few minutes of a shellac disc uh, they had hair width micro grooves and they they had less um, the sort of noise floor of a shellac record is often compared to the sizzle of bacon. Um, And the, the LPs didn't have that same noise floor. They had a kind of crackle that people eventually came to cherish. Um, And that sure is, is, is part of the story. Um, But a bigger part of the story is uh, the second world war produced blockages uh, of trade routes that, impelled the record industry to consider other materials and more expensive materials, um, with more urgency. Um, so the war is a, is a big part of that story, but it's also, you know, the, the timeline of that story is, is a little bit different than I think at least than I understood it before, because you know, the plastic plastic was used, um, in the recording industry, Almost as soon as synthetic plastics were synthesized, and this was in 1928, 1930, um, and as soon as um, as soon as companies were able to do this, one of the, the, often their first calls were to the record industry, and so the record industry was actually using a fair bit of plastic in various um, contexts from the 1930s and much before the kind of 19. 19- mark when most people think of LPs as being introduced. There's actually a significant market um, for children's records. They're called kid discs. Um, And that was was probably the most significant early use of plastic in the record industry in 1930s and 40s. Um, And that had nothing to do with sound quality. That was because... um, these discs were durable and and because kids could sort of abuse them and, and the records could take a beating. And, and with all of this, um, the underlying political ecology of the record industry changes as well. Um, it becomes associated with, um, well, with diversified automotive interests. Um, eventually, you know, big companies like, BP uh, in the UK, for example, which supplied a lot of the vinyl for records in the UK during the '70s boom, um, and and so I don't, The way I summarize it in the book is that the the ecological center of gravity would have shifted around this time from um, forests of the southeast to oil fields of the Middle East.
1: And what was the impact on on the workers? Well, the, the
0: the process of making a uh, a plastic lp is not essentially different from making a shellac uh, 78 they both involve this process of squishing um goop and making it into a disc um and and the working conditions were were as i said remarkably similar there was there was use of of uh cheap women's labor um and there were Infractions uh, on the health conditions of certain workers, um, and and um, as well as indiscriminately disposing of some of the toxic chemicals used to make PVC uh, in pretty nasty ways. And this the the one story I focus on in the book. There is in the U.S. Um, there's a there's a corporation called Kieser Century, which was a, a main supplier of LP of, of LP plastic. Uh, to the U.S. record industry around the vinyl boom. Uh, and kaiser Century had been under investigation by the Environmental Protection Agency as early as 1977 and on and off again until uh, the year 2000 when this the uh, EPA came back. This time they brought the FBI um, and they gave the company a, a significant fine uh, for dumping hazardous waste on it, onto its property and for releasing um, chemicals at toxic levels in the plant itself, uh, which also drifted into uh, an elementary school across the road and was, was risking harming children. So this this problem of poisoning groundwater potentially, and uh, harming workers and even people in the surrounding area is uh, something that seems as though it was Prevalent. I don't think that the keys of century example would be, uh, unique. In fact, the, where the book begins is with this contemporary thing that everyone likes to call the vinyl revival. Mm. And so for that, um, I, w- I was interested in the conditions of, of how contemporary records were made. Um, and I went to a pressing plant in the States, and that was, you know, very interesting. Processes haven't changed uh, really since the, the 50s, although that, they are changing a bit now. People are introducing new processes. Um, but it's, it's a really kind of interesting warehouse where there are these big containers that have these lentil-like um, polymer pellets that get funneled down into the machinery. They get heated. Uh, they become these little disks that look like hockey pucks. And then those get squashed and, and, and they make records. And the company wouldn't tell me where it's plastic for making those records came from. But I did see these big fridge sized boxes um, on the pressing floor. And they had these big red letters on them that said vinyl product uh, or vinyl compound product of Thailand. And uh, so it took me a long time to didn't take me that long to figure out which company it was um, which was Thai plastic and chemicals corporation it did take me a long time to to try and make my way to to get a tour of their plant and i i did go to bangkok where they're headquartered i didn't get a tour of the plant but i was you know did discuss the, the business with one of their representatives who um you know by that time, I'd, I'd started to find out that um, that the the plant in Bangkok itself had a reputation for pouring toxic wastewater into the main river that flows through Bangkok, and where they process the raw PVC resin uh, in the south south of Thailand um, had a reputation as as you know a very toxic place with birth defects and, and things like that in the area, and the Thai plastic and chemicals certainly didn't want to talk about that. When I tried to raise these questions, the, the representative you know, asked me rhetorically, you know, well, if PVC plastic is used to make medical tools that save people's lives, how can you say that it's
1: toxic? <laughs> wow. And that was their deflection. I mean, it, it's such a radically different history of uh, recorded music, isn't it? You know, instead of going from... New York, Detroit, Nashville, L.A. as as the story. Actually, you know, we're, we're telling a story of, uh, as, as you've mentioned, India, the Middle East, and, and now Thailand. And the assumption would always be like, uh, yeah, this is all true, but um, basically like 15 years ago, that all stops. And now we just have uh, music given to us by ones and zeros, And vinyl, you know, is uh, a tiny proportion of the music buying market. Uh, We can skip over somehow uh, the CD revolution because that's basically digital and, you know, everybody's uh, just streaming now. So music has been freed from these um, exploitative material concerns. But again, you you know, towards the end of the book, you're keen to say, well, actually, the digital has material elements as well. Um, And I'm interested to know what, what they are. And I guess on a really fundamental level, what's the real cost of how we consume music now?
0: Right. So <clears throat> the, the way I'm forgetting who says this, maybe Matthew Kirschenbaum and, and as well as Jonathan Stern, they have a really nice way of illustrating what it is about the digital or, or illustrating that the digital is fundamentally material. And the way they say it is if digital files weren't physical things, your hard drive would never fill up. Right. So, yeah, files take up space. The space is microscopic. Um, you can't see it, but it is it is material. And, you know, s- process, storing that data, processing it and transmitting it around the world, downloading it and streaming it all requires energy. And it requires a lot of energy, um, given the amount of online traffic that exists now um so uh this is you know one way in which streaming is potentially not the way forward because the 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 data that that I collected which surprised me was you know I did some comp I had I needed a way to compare the amount of plastic used by the record industry to you know the fact that of course the record industry does use a, a tremendous amount less plastic today than at the height of the cd the cassette or the vinyl lp right Hmm. um they use way less plastic but once you do some conversions of, of the amount of plastic used to greenhouse gas equivalents and if you do the same for the forms of electricity that are used to power streaming and downloading today um it looks like the amount of greenhouse gas equivalents released by the record industry actually increase after streaming takes over, um, at least since 2015. So these, these are, you know, these are real costs of, of, you know, streaming that often, you know, happens, uh, quite constantly and and without a thought for those, for those issues
1: yeah and, and all of our metaphors like you know oh it comes from the cloud from the cloud, streaming um,
0: even even I go at some other metaphors in the book, even the idea of, of a network um, suggests or it has a tendency to suggest that that you know the data is just sort of out there and, and purely virtual, um, but it's you know it's the the telecoms infrastructure that we rely on for listening to music on the internet as well as all the other things we do is mainly hardwired uh definitely material and, and it uses a lot of energy
1: so what this sounds like a strange question and maybe there are there are two bits of it but on the one hand there's a kind of so what should we do and i think there's an obvious uh taking seriously the uh material production uh, of music and, and trying to make it less uh, environmentally and, and uh, humanly impactful or, or, or damaging but also I, I i think um and i'm interested to hear your thoughts uh, on that but also i think there's an interesting um research or, or intellectual question that this poses because there are strains in various uh whether it's you know musicology or you know you see it with other uh, art form studies that are just like so what you know that doesn't stop uh Beethoven being Beethoven um, or, you know, the various uh, misdemeanors of um, key um, 20th century uh, rock or electronic um, composers or whatever. Well, you know, music is timeless. It's beautiful. uh, The aesthetic triumphs any questions of ideology or materiality. So whilst you might get most people agreeing that we should stop destroying the planet, what, what does your material analysis mean for, I suppose, uh, scholars that would, uh, you know, be slightly more dismissive um, of the impact of a material anal- analysis on um, their scholarship of music?
0: Yeah, I mean, there have been no shortage of of music scholars who <clears throat> who don't think that this matters. <laughs> I mean, even if they agree it matters, they just don't think that that what I've done is in a sense, music research. Um, There's no shortage of that. Um, But, and, and I'm, I wouldn't, so there's a few qualifiers maybe I should offer, which is that I wouldn't deny that, that music can be, you know, beautiful or special or, you know, full of ways of connecting people, enriching people's lives and all of this. The book doesn't say that that music doesn't do those things right um and i should also say that you know i'm i'm fully implicated in all of this um right i've played in bands that have released cds and records i happen to own a few records Uh, i do subscribe to a streaming service (laughs) Right, I'm completely implicated in this, so I'm I'm not writing or or speaking about any of this from up on a, a high horse. Um, but you know, I do think that it's important to recognize these things um, in in music, and even in some of the music that we want to value most highly, it's not immune. Uh, it's not separate from the conditions that define most of the other areas of of commodity culture that, that we exist in. Um, and, and the kind of whatever we want to call it, if there's an ideology of music that does suggest it's special and apart from, from these other realities, I strongly think that that needs to be dismantled. Um, and you know, it may seem unkind or, 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 or whatever to, to demote or, or, deflate this cultural form that most of us are are used to exalting or exceptionalizing. Um, but, but, you know, actually, the, the way I argue about it in the book is that it, it's that those of us who are most concerned with the goodness, potential goodness and beauty of music and the value of music should actually be the first to welcome a critique of these broader political ecological conditions. It should be the last people to, to hide from these realities in the, in the interest of sort of, well, coating themselves in familiar aesthetic comforts or ways of thinking about music. Um, So, so yeah, I do think it's really important to, to, do this kind of deflationary work in relation to music and you know it is also it's the kind of thing that has happened in other realms right we think about coffee or clothing or food um, in ways that, that people wouldn't have at one point and none of those things is working out perfectly um but but you know it seems like for at least some people there have been some material improvements um and you know music isn't as big of a problem in any of this as the automobile industry or food or even coffee probably i don't have direct comparison there but um but that's not again a good argument for ignoring its contribution to the the bigger picture
1: that project you mentioned about the dismantling is that what you're going to be doing more of um you know is will it be like a decomposed to uh come in um which you know there might be some fruitful comparisons actually with the coffee industry and, and, and trade and things like tea and coffee um or are you going to be doing something uh, slightly different um with, with your next project um
0: it's a good question i mean in the, in the book i do end by because because the, the immediate question it was almost like you know in in many of the the responses to the book, the, the impulse is to jump into what next, right? So I'm very yeah. grateful that you took the time to want to hear about the other parts of the book before we got there. But it's an inevitable question. And, and, um, and I, I don't have the answers. I'm not particularly hopeful either. Um, but in terms of, of, of the what next, I, I provide some answers in the book that are more along the lines of what not to do. Um, and just briefly, those, those are the, you know, I don't think that thinking in, in romantic terms about previous formats is, is going to, to get us anywhere really. Cause some people would say, oh, well, we'll just, you know, go back to even plastic recordings, right? Because if, oh, if the emissions are greater from streaming, we should go back to plastic. But of course, if people Bought records at the rate that they stream music. Of course, records would be much worse in in environmental terms, and even you know going back to something like shellac, which is oh well, it's a natural resin, it's biodegradable, it's renewable. Um, you know those things are all true, but I think if you look at the the labor conditions that that existed before in the global shellac industry, I'm not sure you know that. The, I would be very enthusiastic about moving back to shellac as a main staple commodity for, for music. Um, in terms of, you know, what, what comes next again, I don't, I don't have good answers. You ask if I'm going to work on a decomposed two, I'm thinking about a project called recomposed the ecological record. So that sounds a lot like a sequel, doesn't it? (laughs) Um, so i was I was at the there a big industry conference called Making vinyl, which is for the main plastic um, recording format enthusiasts and business people um and basically, what I was there to do was to find out what the level of industry discourse was on trying to make a record out of a non oil based plastic right so a record made out of mushrooms or a record made out of um Food waste, for example, um, and and I'm interested in that project. I think if there's a next book, it's it's probably probably is a book about how to think about what comes next. Um, I don't I don't have the answers there, but but I think maybe in the book there are moments where it it suggests that individual ethos of consumption might be a way out of this. And I actually don't think that, right. This is why the book isn't meant to make people feel guilty about streaming or, or anything like that, because, you know, I actually I really like um, the perspective of a Canadian researcher called Max Liboiron, who does stuff on plastics research in the ocean. And, uh, you know, she's being asked in a, in an intro, in a little documentary called guts, she's being asked, you know, what do we do about the plastics problem in the ocean? And she says, if you want to do anything about this problem, it does absolutely nothing to stop, say, getting plastic bags at a grocery store. She says, at the level of individual or personal ethics, it, of course, matters a lot how you choose to exist and, and, and do those things. At the scale of the problem, it's absolutely ineffective. right? So the interviewer presses her, you know, well, what would you do? she says if you want to solve the plastics problem in the ocean you regulate the oil industry um and and so i'm i'm trying to square that with with my own thinking on this uh, a little bit more as i move forward from the book um you know because I, I don't think that our our individual choices at the scale of the problem are, are going to make a big difference and i think you know um Josh Lipowski, uh, who's actually, I believe, a colleague of Max Libero, has this great book called "Digital No." What is it called? Reassembling Rubbish. Um, and you know, he he says having things like I don't know if you had a little he doesn't say this, but the, I'm drawing on him. You know, if you had a little energy monitor when you were streaming Spotify or whatever that let you know what kind of electricity or where the energy to get your electricity comes from, how much of it we're using, or, you know, maybe these kinds of of things do something. But I think there's evidence to suggest that that kind of sort of self-regulation is, is a pretty pernicious thing. Um, but he says, you know, he calls for what he describes as genuine extended producer responsibility. But it's, Not so much about consumer responsibility, although that's a part of the equation. He says what what is needed is for people to band together, to demand that the producers in the system conduct themselves responsibly and, and openly.